Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. For this recording, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alice Nyawira Karuri. Dr. Karuri is a lecturer in development studies at Strathmore University in Nairobi, Kenya. She holds a PhD in development studies from Jomo Kenyatta University of Agriculture and Technology, as well as degrees from George Washington University and Morgan State University. Her research focuses on farmer empowerment and sustainability within agricultural commodity chains, particularly in Africa. And she has published on that subject in co-authored pieces in the Journal of Economics and Development Studies, as well as the Journal of Social Science for Policy Implications. And in a similar vein, she has agreed to discuss with us one of her recent publications, Adaptation of Small-Scale Tea and Coffee Farmers in Kenya to Climate Change, which was published in 2020 in the African Handbook of Climate Change Adaptation. Dr. Kareri, thank you very much for agreeing to record this podcast. I just want to start off oh. by um, asking you um, about, the, about your research in general. What are the challenges of climate change to small-scale tea and coffee farmers in Kenya? Or more specifically, how is climate change protected to affect temperature and rainfall patterns in Kenya? And what challenges will this pose or are already posing to small-scale tea and coffee farmers? Thank you very much, Dr. Philip. And it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So... My research is in agriculture, specifically, um, when I started out, I was looking at farmers, at institutions, um, how farmers organize themselves. And so the book chapter you read was the first time I actually started moving to climate change. So currently, the small-scale farmers, they are facing a lot of challenges um, because of the changing weather patterns, especially because they are mostly small-scale. And agriculture in Kenya is rain dependent. So we have, you know, 98% of our agriculture is rain fed. We have very little land which is um, irrigated. So now we are having, you know, these climate change effects, you know, we are expecting temperatures to rise by 2.2 degrees by 2050. Um, rainfall is projected to reduce by 20% by 2030. Um, so we have all these extreme weather events, we have droughts, we have had actually an ongoing drought that we are hoping to get out of in this season. We have had flooding, we have had a locust invasion. So the small scale farmers don't have the capacity to deal with this, so it's been extremely difficult for them. Um, and for perhaps the, the book chapter I wrote was on tea and coffee, but even the fishery industry, the livestock industry, they are all dominated by small scale farmers. And perhaps maybe to put that in context, I'm not just with agriculture, but Kenya's economy is climate sensitive. So all our industries are highly susceptible to climate change. In fact, they are projecting that annually we might lose up to 2.8% of our GDP, you know, just because of climate related events. So with agriculture, there are those problems I've stated, but when we come to the service sector, Kenya is heavily reliant on tourism, and of course, when there's droughts and the wildlife dies, and that's our main attraction. When it comes to manufacturing, electricity is our largest expense. We rely on hydroelectric power. So again, you know, we have reduced rainfall, the electricity goes up. So it just affects all the economic sectors across the board. So clearly climate change is having a major impact on agriculture and also just the wider economy in, in Kenya. What policies has the government of Kenya put in place 
to regulate agricultural and other industries in order that they respond to these challenges of climate change? And more broadly, how, how effective are they in their current form? So the policies, um, number one, we are signatories of a couple of international conventions. So in 1994, you know, Kenya signed on to the Convention of Biological Diversity. Um, we also ratified the Paris Agreement. Um, in fact, we are projecting to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 32% by 2030. But there are other conventions um, combating desertification and so on. But when it comes to the national government, um, different industries, because agriculture covers so many sectors, we have our Ministry of Agriculture having its policies on climate change, productivity. We have the Ministry of Environment and Forest Services. Um, we have the Ministry of Trade, the Ministry of Health, because malnutrition is such a, a huge thing, although we are an agricultural country. So we have all these policies which the government has put in place. Actually, Kenya is a leader in you know, climate change policy. Now, the enacting of it is problematic because we have an overlap of mandates between the different institutions and also because there is competing industries, especially when it comes to manufacturing. Um, we are having more and more investments with agriculture and a lot of decisions made are politically based. So if it's something that's going to penalize investors or the population, then, you know, so we've had, you know, subsidies perhaps where they shouldn't be. So, yeah, so we do have the policies on this. So, for example, if I could just take the forestry um, desertification. So the Ministry of Agriculture had actually banned logging from 2018, temporarily um, lifted it. So there's those kind of policies on the ground where, I mean, even, for example, in my rural area, you know, for us to cut a tree on our farm and transport it, we need a permit. So sometimes they, they'll enforce it. But at the same time, we have poverty-driven desertification happening or logging. So, you know, firewood is our main source of fuel in the rural areas. So that will happen. Landless people will encroach. So there is this kind of balance between the policies we have and how do you affect them, you know, when people's livelihoods are depending on them. You point to a really interesting thing about certification, and this is something that you actually turn to in, in your chapter on uh, small-scale tea and coffee farmers. You noted in that chapter that um, certification in the coffee sector is not as extensive as in the tea sector. Could you explain why this is the case? And I suppose what consequences does this have for each sector's capacity to build effective, adaptive uh, or mitigative strategies to the effects of climate change? Yeah, so as uh, you mentioned, tea and coffee are our major cash crops. So yeah. the tea sector is heavily certified. In fact, now it's projected about, you know, at some point it could have been 100, but now 85% of all tea produced is Rainforest um, Alliance certified. In the coffee sector, it's much different. The main factor that drove the certification of the tea sector is the presence of Unilever. So multinational corporation, they own huge tracts of... um tea, their, their own tea farms. However, they are also a large buyer of, you know, small-scale tea production. So around 2007, Unilever came out, said all the tea we buy has to be Rainforest Alliance certified. And because they are such a major um, buyer of the tea, then it drove the farms to, you know, to get certified. So by 2015, they were all certified. Um, Unilever did help with capacity building. You know, that's eight years of getting people to to get to that standard. I come from a tea growing area and we actually own a tea farm. So, you know, I was asking my mother about this, you know, you know, you're rainforest land certified. She had no clue <laughs> um, what that was. The only thing she knew is 
you know, um, some people came around from the factory and told us we need a shed so the workers cannot be rained on. We need washroom facility. We need to lock up our chemicals. So they understand, you know, the things they should do, but, you know, that it's a certification scheme, you know, that hasn't really trickled down. So the tea sector is also centrally organized. So all small-scale tea, everyone has to be registered to a tea factory. It's under the Kenya Tea Development Authority. So it's very easy to kind of harness everyone. The coffee sector is more fragmented. So there are thousands of factories, you know, more than 600 cooperatives, as opposed to tea that has only 66 factories. So kind of getting everyone on board was more difficult. Um, and then additionally, every coffee cooperative gets their own certification. So some will do fair trade, some will go for a different kind of certification. And because there's no buyer who is, you know, telling them I'll buy your coffee, then it becomes their own expense and certification can be very expensive. So $10,000 for a small coffee cooperative is too much, you know, paying for the audit, keeping up with all the requirements. And that would make sense if they were making these investments and they have a sure market and they have sure prices, but, you know, the world, the world market for coffee is extremely volatile. So you put all this effort into certifying your coffee and it's, you know, there's no return for it. And again, you can actually certify your coffee and there's no demand for the certified coffee. So actually in the coffee industry, quality trumps certification. So when buyers come around, they're not necessarily looking for certified coffee. It's like, what's the cup? You know, is this a good cup? Is this a good quality grade? That's what they're going for. So unlike in the tea where, you know, you have Unilever driving this. Uh, that's fascinating. One of the things that I think, like you're pointing to a really important role for um, Unilever in particular, but also possibly to fair trade for, for coffee. And there seems to be like a big ju juxtaposition here between these massive multinational organizations on the one hand and small scale tea and coffee farmers. What is the relationship between um, these giants of international trade and small scale tea and coffee farmers in Kenya? Um, and I suppose what organizations and strategies exist to mediate between these groups who I think regularly have divergent economic and sustainability interests? Right. So as you can imagine, the power asymmetry between small scale farmers and the MNCs is extremely huge. So these are multi-billion dollar industries and then you have small scale farmers. So even going back historically, you know, you have this large scale, like Unilever has their tea farms. We have other multinationals, Finlay's and others, especially in the tea sector, the coffee sector, not so much. But you have these um, multinationals who have been accused of taking land, which, you know, came from the, the white settlers. It's like the MNCs just took the place of, of the colonialists. So there has been that issue of the historical land injustices. But then again, when you have one multinational being a key buyer, then, you know, how do you negotiate? So that is one thing, um, for example, our president has talked about that we need to be selling our product with value addition. So with the multinationals, and, and it goes back to the colonial issue that we were producing for empire. And it seems we are still producing for empire, only now that it's you know other developed countries. But what happened just as with the colonial regime, you know, we saw people just cash crops being exported under primary commodities. So even now, the multinationals will import primary commodities. So if we take coffee as an example, only 5% of our coffee is sold processed. And by that, I mean that it's been roasted, it's shipped out value added. 
40, it's even worse. It's like 3.7%. So we are exporting the primary commodities, it's value added, and then we reimport it. So, you know, here we are, a coffee producing country. You go to the supermarket and the coffee brands are multinationals. You know, that's what we have on the shelf. And even a coffee farmer, because my PhD research was also in coffee, you know, a lot of coffee farmers could not afford to walk in a cafe and buy a cup of coffee. You know, that was beyond their means. And yet they are the producers. Some had never even um drunk. <laughs> like, you know, they would kind of try and, and roast it. You know, some of them, you know, actually gave me a cup of coffee and it was terrible because it's not even brewed right. So they are producers, but they don't consume this. So there's those asymmetrical power relations. And I would add that they are vertically integrated. So like for the tea, you have them integrating down to the farm level. But even with the coffee chain, even though the small scale farmers own the land, you'll find there's collusion between the millers and the marketers and the buyers. So you have all this kind of monopoly happening. So you have major buyers who come. So interestingly, some of the mediators have been human rights organizations. So like there's an interesting report. It was published by the Kenya Human Rights Commission. Um, and it's called robbery without violence. So it was just detailing. And now this has nothing to do with the multinationals, but they were talking about the, the governance of cooperatives and how much mismanagement there is. But we also have other human rights organizations who have spoken up on human rights abuses. Um, recently, BBC had a documentary on the tea farms, which are run by you know one of the big multinationals. Um, so that one has been aired and it was um, you know, a, a lot of um sexual exploitation happening and you know by the farm managers and supervisors but this is something that had not been reported so you kind of have that mediation coming in between the mncs and farmers because it really boils down to issues of injustice whether it's economic political social you know even going back to the historical land grievances who owns what land so yeah so those tend to be the mediators a lot um even in environmental issues we can talk about saving the wildlife but you know a lot of times people are being displaced um there's human wildlife conflict so yeah th those are the interesting organizations but it's still interesting because i think there needs to be someone you know acting as a mediator because you know there's really no one kind of i mean we've been talking about small farmers rights for a, a really long time you know year after year they are you know, same story, same song. The issues I still see are the same ones I saw in my PhD research. So there's a lot of um, power um, with the multinationals. You pointed to a, a lot of things which I, I personally am very interested in as I kind of introduced myself uh, as, as a historian. And maybe we could get, get into a little bit of that as well. This idea of um, injustice and how this has roots in, in a deep historical past, particularly with um, white settlers during the colonial period. In the in your chapter, um, you note that tea farming in Kenya is governed by the Tea Act, um, which has been revised most recently in 2012. But actually, the legislation was passed at the end of the colonial period in 1960. I just wondered if you could speak more actually to the legacies of colonial rule and as how it's influenced the tea industry and coffee industry as well, or on how colonial legacies are affecting the Kenyan government's current responses to climate challenges for the tea and coffee industries. Alternatively, are there inflection points? Have the challenges and legislations changed significantly enough that colonial legacies maybe aren't what we think about in terms of the structure of the tea and coffee industries now? Mm. No, they haven't changed at all. And actually, it's one article that refers to agrocolonialism. So 
we had the T Act and now we have a T bill that was tabled in 2020, still being discussed. So yeah, every new regime comes up, you know, and says we we're going to just completely uproot what the other regime was doing. So even this one wants to change um some of the T sector. But um to go back to the historical aspect. Kenya became a protectorate, a British protectorate in 1895. So we were part of the East African protectorate, then we became just, you know, the Kenyan colony. And in 1902, which is just brief, um, shortly after that, you know, we had the Crown Lands Ordinance, and it meant that all land belongs to the British Empire. So, you know, from 1902, they start actively encouraging white settlers to come. In fact, you know, sometimes it's still referred to as the White Highlands because it's the most fertile land and that's um, where I was settled. So they were encouraging people. And of course, you know, it took a while for settlers to really come. So they started incentives by, you know, like in 1897, you could get a 21 year lease as a settler. Then 1902, when they have the Crown Lands Ordinance, they're like, we are going to give you a 99 year lease. By 1915, it was 999 years, which now is the issue going on with the MNCs like, you know, we have a lease for this long and who's, you know. So we have these incentives. So initially settlement was around the Uganda, Kenya-Uganda railway line. So, and of course we had the Asians who had been brought from India to build the railway line, um, who, you know, was, as a side note, were given British citizenship, you know, when independence came, but um, the other Africans who had <laughs> been brought over from South Sudan and so on were not. Um, so we have this settling, but later now they open up the White Highlands. So there are settlers who are coming from South Africa. Um, a few, you know, Jewish people escaping the Holocaust, you know, come. But, you know, these kind of incentives begin to really pick up after the First World War. So we have resettlement um, from British soldiers who are fighting in World War One. So they are given settlement. So about a thousand of them come. So as they came, then Africans had to be displaced, you know, from this area. And the farms need labor. You know, so then there's taxation imposed on Africans. So how do you pay tax? You know, you have to go work on the farm. We have this, you know, huge tract of land only for white settlers. By 1939, the government says, you know, you cannot lease land if you're not a European. So now it further marginalizes people. So they are being pushed into these reserves. Um, Asians are mostly in the urban areas. Um, but as time goes on, you know, people talk of the Mau Mau War. You know, we know the Mau Mau uprising. But their, their official name was the Kenya Land and Freedom Army. Mau Mau is just a name they got from the British. But the issue was land and freedom and the fact that we cannot be free if we don't have our land. So there is this uprising which, you know, there was brutality on both sides. But, you know, with this state of emergency declared from 1952, violence, um, you know, just extreme on both ends. So by 1959, you know, that ordinance was removed. So they said, you know, Africans can own land. Actually, that's when the state of emergency ended. In 1959, an African can own land, but how do you own land? So the first stipulation, which you had to go before an area board and make your case, is that you have the finances to actually run a farm. Then number two, you have to have a European who is willing to sell you the land. And then the third one, which was <laughs> the most interesting, you have to convince that you can do agriculture. So you have to make a convincing demonstration of this, which, you know, even now, you know, we still have, you know, MNCs and others saying, this is how you need to farm. This is, these are the fertilizers you need. So it's still an ongoing thing. But um, the one good thing you had to do this before a board of settlers, 
Um, but if you felt that you had been racially discriminated, you could appeal to a board that was equal representation of African Asians and whites. And, you know, and fair enough, there were British administrators who were really looking out for African interests. So it wasn't all bad. There are, there are people who are pushing for this. But essentially, the only Africans who could manage, you know, are people who had finances, probably people who are colluding with the British administration. But even worse, you know, is that when we got independence in 1963, land was not reallocated to the original owners, which is the reason we are still having all this post-election violence, you know, every cycle. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, the first president, you know, when land was allocated, gave to his own ethnic community. Um, I'm part of that community, so I'm just stating it. But those are the people who were able to buy land. They were, they were facilitated to buy land. So now, you know, just all these years later, and, you know, you have white settlers who stayed, so very, still very large-scale farms, so even up to now, it's very unequal. You have large tracts of lands. Um, you have conservancies, you know, which are thousands of acres and which still cause conflict because you have pastoralists saying we want to come to the conservancies. Um, actually, in 2017, there was a British. He's a dual citizen, um, but he was murdered. Uh, on the other hand, you have, you know, African activists being killed. So, you know, this is 60 years down the line. We are still dealing with that. So, you know, what happened is that when the settlers leave, then the large-scale farms go to people who can afford them, who are part of uh, of certain ethnic groups. And then you have the remaining land then being just, you know, allocated to, you know, to kind of fragmented. Um, and then also keep in mind, only 17% of Kenya's land is considered arable. So the rest is arid and semi-arid lands, which means the rainfall is below 50 centimeters. So only 17% arable, we have all these large-scale farms, everyone else. So, you know, land is very expensive. So everyone else has to kind of fit in there. So then, of course, it's just perpetuated with the issue of succession. Our population, of course, has grown. And succession, you know, normally goes by family line. So, you know, what was once, even if it was a 20-acre farm, you divide it by your two sons. And then, so the land sizes are extremely small. I've spoken to farmers with only 50 coffee bushes. You know, so it's very hard unless you come together as a group, you can't do it. But, you know, just suffice to say that those inequalities are still there and more exacerbated now. I mean, it makes it hard to now deal with climate change because we cannot make rational decisions, economic decisions. So conservation decisions are normally political, you know, political, economic based. Land distribution is done on, you know, elite capture and and you know, to please certain people. So yeah, it's still a huge issue. So climate change, you know, the long term can't be dealt with when we are still still dealing with the this with the more urgent issues. So it sounds like um structurally speaking, tea and coffee farming has been basically built to be small scale and increasingly so over over a long period. And I wonder just in that context, are there organizations that enable farmers to benefit from economies of scale? And, and I suppose, have they been meeting uh, and organizing to meet the, the, the challenges of climate change as well? So there has been a mixed effect. We have a cooperative alliance of Kenya and they have about 14,000 registered cooperatives. So like the coffee industry has over 600. Different sizes, you know, some have 15,000 members, others have 250 or 500. So they are able to harness economies of scale in different um, ways. 
you know, in tea, we don't call them cooperatives. It's just tea factory membership. So the tea has been able to harness this. So if I could give an example with the tea sector, deforestation doesn't, it does happen sometimes for, you know, extending the tea farm, but mostly the processing of tea, the drying takes a lot of firewood, you know, and it's cheaper than electricity. So a lot of um, plantations have been cut for this processing. So the tea factories have been able to organize themselves, you know, buy thousands of acres of land. They are planting eucalyptus trees, which are water intensive, but it's a start. And, you know, giving seedlings to local communities. So around the tea sector, they've been able to organize and, and assist in this way. There was also a plan to do carbon credits for tea factories that, you know, are using hydroelectric power instead of the firewood. So for the coffee sector, um, as I said, the, the organization has not been is not as good as the tea sector. So for them, it's mixed. You know, with certification, of course, you have to meet um, certain parameters. But again, you know, some of the parameters are not so much to combat climate change, but to increase productivity, <laughs> you know. And a lot of regulations in the agricultural sector are to increase productivity, increase your yields. So I think the tea sector has done better. And, and tea doesn't use pesticides. You know, so far there's pests and diseases, but tea grows in high altitude areas, so they escape that. But coffee, there is some um, intensive use of chemicals, you know, so whether it's pesticides, fungicides, so it can be very intense. So for them, it's it's a bit more challenging. And also, the coffee cooperatives have been so misgoverned, and there, <laughs> there are many reports about this even on the county level, you know, so the mismanagement of money, they're only supposed to use 20% of money on operational costs. So the coffee industry hasn't done as well, but mostly because of the mismanagement of cooperatives. There are a few good examples. I've you know, been to cooperatives which have you know, different certifications, doing well, transparent, open books, but you know, unfortunately, that's not the story. But there has been you know, attempts at reform. All right, so you've kind of answered this next question um, in some ways already, but I think it's worth um, reiterating the point. At the end of your chapter, you mention a series of recommendations for the future, uh, which revolve around farmer empowerment, strengthening institutions, which you've kind of alluded to just now, uh, building collaborations and partnerships, and again, certification, which we've come back to. Um, and I suppose the kind of the final question I really want to ask you about this topic is, uh, what challenges are there for implementing these recommendations? And which ones are, I suppose, being implemented the most successfully uh, at present? And I suppose, how is that the case? The, I think the one that's been done successfully is the collaborations and partnerships. So even with all our challenges, we have wonderful research institutions. So we have CALRO, which is a Kenya Agricultural and Livestock Research Organization. So doing a lot of research on new varieties. Actually, they came up with um, a GMO, you know, maize variety. So they've, they've been doing good work, the Tea Research Institute, coffee research. So that has been good. Um, collaborating with universities that, you know, focus on agriculture, even with um, the NGOs, with IFAD and all the rest. So that has worked well. The farmer empowerment is still problematic just because of these asymmetric power relations across the chain. So it's still difficult for farmers, especially if their vehicle of organizing, which is a cooperative, is mismanaged, then, you know, basically they are powerless with that. So that has been a bit more difficult. And of course, because they are such a, a large population, then politicians will leverage them, you know, and, and it becomes a very political, even the 
election of cooperative management is is highly politicized. There's same issues we see on the national level, you know, bribery, corruption, intimidation, that happens at the cooperative level. So for the farmer empowerment, that has been problematic. For certification, you know, good schemes and some farmers are actually okay with them when, when they're in cooperatives that run well, but the volatility of wild prices makes it a challenge. So you do all these things to get certification and then, you know, wild market goes down and farmers being economic, you know, being rational thinkers will always respond. So if the wild market, you know, they kind of gauge what to do. So certification um, may not work as well. And then, of course, with the certification, there is also the idea of supply exceeding demand. So you can produce all your, your consignment certified, but, you know, the people come to the auction and coffee and tea are sold in, a, in an auction system of which it's it's been regarded as opaque. <laughs> so there's, you know, a lot of of um collusion between buyers as well because they are they are the major and so that kind of nullifies the efforts of the farmers. The other one for the institutions, I think it's at all levels, you know, because even the farmers need to the the cooperative act also needs to be strengthened in a way that it can protect the farmers. But even on a national level, you know, the government just making policies which they can implement. Um, now we have we are part of the East African community. And that's Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, DRC, recently Somali. So we are this block. We should have, you know, kind of trade that's above ground, but we still have a lot of illegal trading. So between like Uganda and us, we are producing the same things. So even with our fertilizers for our agricultural input, um, some are banned in Kenya. You'll have Kenyan farmers, you know, crossing the border and getting them illegally. Then you have cheaper inputs in Uganda. So there is still a lot of strengthening to be done. But I think also, you know, in Africa as a whole, our intra-African trade is so low. <laughs> it's at, you know, 16%. So, you know, and when you when you think of the of the fact that Africa is 65% of all unused arable land, and currently over 30 million hectares under multinational corporations, you know, so we are still in that uh, primary commodities out and import, and it's easier to do business with Europe than with each other. So, you know, Europe has over 60% intra-European trade, Asia is at 55%, but for us, we are not doing business with each other. And I think that is something that would strengthen, you know, our capacity, even for agriculture and to have, and to probably even have a voice. And, I, and the MNCs have, some of them have tried with their sustainability, but I think there's still a whole lot more to be done on all levels you know, globally, but even by our own government. Because if our governance structures are strong, then they can even mediate MNCs and, and the farmers themselves. Yeah, so challenges and good things as well. Well, thank you so much for that. That's uh, really interesting. And I know um, our listeners will really uh, value your your comments here and your scholarship. And I do urge everyone who's listening to uh, go ahead uh, and read the chapter in the African Handbook of Climate Change Adaptation. And in that case, I just have one final question for you, Dr. Karuri. And I just want to know, what are you working on now? Uh, what can we expect to uh, see, hear, uh, read from you uh, sometime in the future? Okay, so sometime in the future, moving to the maize sector. So currently, I'm the principal investigator for a research project. So it's a collaboration between Strathmore University and the University of Oxford. It's called the Hestia Project, and that's on harmonized environmental storage and impacts for agriculture. 
So the Hestia project is just aiming to find out, you know, what are the impacts of agriculture when you give farmers information. So it will comprise just, you know, looking at the agricultural activities and then having a tool where farmers can monitor their agricultural activities. So how much is my greenhouse gas emissions, you know, and later on, hopefully have an advisory engine, but just to see when farmers have access to this information, you know, then how, how do they change their agriculture? So we are hopefully beginning around May, June to get in the field, um, but May sector, but since my passion is agriculture all around, that, that is one thing. And it's good we had the podcast because it reignited my, my interest again on the economic justice issues. So I'll probably also be, be writing on that. Wonderful. I really look forward to seeing more of that research, particularly as I'm going to probably talk to you after this recording now. Uh, Maze is something that I'm interested in from a historical standpoint. But in any case, Dr. Kururi, thank you very much for agreeing to this podcast, for your answers to our questions uh, and for your research. Um, I also want to thank as well um, Sam Glee Riemann for organising and producing this podcast. Uh, And I want to thank you, the listener, for streaming or downloading. Uh, Once again, my name is Philip Gooding. And this is the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 